0: Welcome back to Portfolio Rescue! Each week we get tons of questions from our audience on personal finance, investing, taxes, markets, crypto, financial planning, everything in between. This show answers those questions. Remember, email us at AskTheCompoundShow at gmail.com. Today's sponsor is AcreTrader. AcreTrader allows you to invest in farmland across the country. One of the benefits of investing in farmland, while has little to no correlation with stocks and bonds, does have a positive correlation with inflation. Duncan, this week on Animal Spirits, we we're talking about maybe inflation is going to be a little stickier, a little higher, 4 to 5% potentially going forward. Uh, maybe this is kind of one of those things Raven had to worry about inflation in a long time, and farmland is one of those things. Remember, AcreTrader makes it easy to simply invest in professionally managed farmland. So visit AcreTrader.com to learn more and to learn more about the risks involved. That's AcreTrader.com slash company slash terms. Duncan, you and I were on the road this week
1: in we Texas. Were. Yeah.
0: Um, speaking of inflation, we kind of made the point that before there was, like, New York and maybe L.A. inflation and then everywhere else, when you go to restaurants, bars, and such, it seems like that just permeates the whole country now. Everything's kind of just expensive everywhere these days.
1: Yeah. No, I I bought a, a thing of whole bean coffee at a coffee shop near the hotel. It was $20.
0: Okay. That seems fair.
1: See, that's why I don't drink coffee. But that's, like, that's like Brooklyn prices. That's what I would pay in Brooklyn. Yeah. This is Houston, you know?
0: Uh, yeah, it is just interesting how how long until the consumer revolts because it doesn't seem like anyone mind. Every flight I was on, everyone get on quickly, put your stow your stuff up top because this flight is full. People are still spending money. I wonder when uh, when we're going to start fighting it. Anyway, let's uh, let's do some questions.
1: Cool. Yeah, and thanks thanks everyone in uh, in Texas. It was it was a good time. It was my first time in Texas. I thought everyone was was nice. Had a good time. Nice weather. It Was fun. Yeah,
0: everyone was very nice down there. It was great.
1: Yep. Yeah. All right. So first up today. We have a question from uh, Yajur, I think is the best pronunciation I can do. Um, Hey, guys, love the show. Question for you. People are saying that the bond market is screaming recession. Has the bond market ever been wrong? Any notable examples? If so, why was it wrong?
0: So the bond market generally is known to be smarter than the stock market. But yes, the bond market gets it wrong. You don't have to go back very far in history to figure this out. The bond market totally missed inflation, much like most people, right? Right. Uh, the bond market did not see this pandemic-induced inflation coming, just like the Fed. I mean, think about it. At the end of 2021, this is less than a year ago, the 10-year Treasury was still yielding 1.5%. By that point, inflation was already 7%, going higher. So the bond market was completely offsides. And I think one of the that's one of the biggest reasons we've had this huge adjustment in rates this year is because the bond market had to play catch-up. Now, you could blame the Fed for that stuff, right? The Fed was telling us all that inflation was going to be transitory it wasn't going to last very long. It wasn't supposed to stick around at these high levels for this long. So maybe the bond market was taking its marching orders from the Feds. But I guess if you're in the camp that that rates are all manipulated by the Fed and the Fed is doing all this stuff, can you really look to the bond market to be this predictor of what's going to happen in the economy? I don't know. I, I think it can be helpful to understand like what causes yields to change in bonds in the first place. So sure, the, the Fed controls short-term yields, right? But that's only on the very short end of the curve. You also have to think of things like supply and demand for bonds and Based on investor demand for those, And there are like inflation expectations and you know, expect expectations for future Fed moves, expectations for economic growth, and maybe some price yield trends, you know, that that's going on if you're a technical trader, I guess. I think if you add all this up, one of the things that's confusing for people who don't pay attention to the bond market is you get bond yields moving, but they don't always move in the same direction at the same magnitude. Right? So, John, throw on the chart of 10-year treasury yields versus three-month T-bills. So this is over time. You can see directionally they're fairly similar. But you can see, so, so 3 months T-bills are essentially, think of them as like savings account yields. It's kind of a good proxy for the Fed funds rate that they use to sort of uh, do monetary policy by raising and lowering rates. But this is like a savings account yield or a CD rate. You can see right now at like 4.3%, percent 3 months T-bills are yielding almost 80 basis points more than the 10-year treasury yield. That, that we talked about in an inverted yield curve last week. In terms of risk and reward, that, that shouldn't make sense where ultra-short-term three-month government-backed T-bills, which mature in a very short period of time, shouldn't yield that much more than something that goes 10 years out on the risk curve, right? Um, so this is not normal. The hard part here is the, the Fed is effectively inverting the yield curve, right? They're raising short-term rates, and the long end of the curve is saying, I don't care, right? Because the Fed is trying to snuff out inflation. So is the bond market predicting a recession, or is the Fed simply going to cause one? It, it's kind of like, is, is the bond market really doing Stuff here, is it really just the Fed saying, no, 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 we're, we're showing you we're going to do it because we're, we're raising short-term rates? Uh, it's also interesting to see how the yield curve has changed over the past year or so. So John, show, throw this next curve up. This is a one-year difference in three-month T-bill yields, two-year Treasury yields, 10-year Treasury yields, and 30-year Treasury yields. You can see the, the, the longer-term bonds have moved up. The 30-year went from 1.9 to 3.5 or so. The 10-year, again, went from 1.5 to 3.5. But look at how much. Three-month T-bills, this is a year ago, not that long ago went from basically nothing. It was seven basis points to 4.3%. Even two-year treasuries went from less than 70 basis points to 4.3%. So we've had a huge move in the bottom. There's been slight move up in in longer-term rates, but not nearly as much. And so I, I guess the yield curve could be telling us a bunch of different things. We don't know. It can't communicate. But it could be saying the long end of the curve doesn't believe inflation is going to be here to stay, which if you think the bond market is smart, yeah, maybe we believe them. But is the bond market really that smart? I don't know. Traders maybe assume the Fed is going to have to cut rates in the next 12 to 18 months, right? That's why those longer-term rates aren't moving down yet or are, are kind of staying put because they don't believe that the, that the Fed is going to keep rates this high. Uh, and then, again, the short end of the curve is maybe helping the Fed orchestrate retirement because that's all they can do, or uh, recession, retirement, yeah, that'd be fun if we, if we could retire the Fed. Because uh, that's all the Fed can do to slow inflation, right? So, I don't know, maybe economic growth is going to slow and come once That's what the bond is telling. And maybe just- We should realize that predicting the future of the economy in the path of growth and inflation, and interest rates and all these things is really difficult for the bond market or the Fed. So my biggest reservation about using the bond market to try to predict what's going to happen in the economy right now is just that the Fed is so involved in these markets. And I don't know if the bond market is telling us something or they're just doing what the Fed is telling them.
1: In general, do you think our bond people having like a renaissance right now? Are they just like rolling up in a Rolls Royce and like getting out with sunglasses on? I feel well, like they not, have to be feeling good these days.
0: Well, well, not yet, because if you look at past performance, bonds have gotten killed this year.
1: Well, Going yeah, forward,
0: they should be doing better because rates are finally higher, but...
1: I just uh, mean for years, it was like no one cared anything about bonds, and now yeah, so everyone's you're right. talking
0: about bonds. To, yeah, to your point, we, we've been mentioning this for a few weeks. We get tons of questions on bonds these days. We got another yeah. one in this this very episode, but... Yes, I just think I don't want to argue with like historical relationships, but I also think that the Fed being so heavily handed and involved here makes it much harder to understand what's going on.
1: Yeah, yeah, I find I find it all confusing, and uh, that's a good segue to the next question because, yeah, this one and the third the third question actually, I find I find a lot of this bond stuff a little confusing. But, uh, Let's do it. Yeah, all right. Up next, we have a question from Jacob. My wife and I just got married in September. We both have good jobs and are trying to save up for a new house in the next few years. We currently have $50,000 in savings for a house, along with a $10,000 emergency fund, which we hold at a local credit union in a savings account at a 3% yield. We are wondering if short-term 3- to 12-month T-bills yielding between 425 and 4.75% would be a better option than a high-yield savings account for these funds.
0: So another question we received for years and years in a low-rate environment was, we're saving up to buy a house, but there is no yield anywhere. What do we do? So savers of the world can finally rejoice. There's finally somewhere to put your money. And you have multiple options, right? Um, And the great thing is, there's not only yield again, but it's yield in the short end of the curve. Because if if you're trying to match that down payment in a house, say like I have three years until I'm going to buy a house or two years, you can kind of match those assets and liabilities and match the time horizon of when you're going to do this, right? If you bought a three-year treasury today, knowing that you're going to try to buy a house in three years, you could essentially set your maturity date for then. And it kind of takes a lot of the risk off the table. Um, I actually think for the first time in a long time, young people could have a better chance. If you have a good credit score and you have a down payment saved in the coming years, I think you're going to have a chance to have much better negotiating power for a home and maybe much better price action. if, If prices do fall 10, 15, 20%, like some people think they could, uh, I think if mortgage rates just came down to like five percent or so, it would make things a lot better for people. And if they don't, if they stay in the six to seven percent range, then prices are gonna have to come down. So I think again, if you're waiting in the wings now, it might not be as good of a time as it was three, four, five years ago, but I think it's gonna get better. So as far as where to save that short term cash, an online savings account is going to be easier. I, I use Marcus, I'm getting three percent right now. That should hopefully be three point two five or three point five by the end of the year, because the Fed is going to raise rates at their meeting next week again. They said probably another 50 basis points, maybe 75, if they want to get crazy. 3% is not bad. So you have this person has $60,000 in saving, right? That's what they say, $50,000 and then $10,000 in emergency savings, right? That's $1,800 a year in interest at 3%. If we get to 3.5%, we're talking more than $2,000 a year. That's pretty good. Uh, Now to their point, short-term Treasuries can earn a higher yield right now. I looked at the average maturity on the one to three-year Treasury ETF for iShares. It's 4.3%. If you go to the Vanguard short-term bond fund. I think that actually has some more corporates than all governments, but that's 4.8%. So with those kind of yields, we're talking more like $2,600, $2,900 a year. If those rates stayed the same, that's that's pretty good. Now, the thing is, these yields, it's not like they just get to a level and then they stay there. But if the Fed's going to keep raising rates and try to fight inflation, those short-term rates should stay higher for a little longer, assuming the Fed doesn't destroy the economy and then have to lower rates just to, to save us again. I, I talk a lot about the tolerance for complexity on this show, and I think that probably comes down to like ease of access here. So in an online savings account, you might get a little bit lower yield, but it's super easy to transfer in especially transfer out, right? I think with it's not that bad if you have to go to a brokerage account, but if, if you're buying these short-term treasuries or treasury ETFs, you have to go to the brokerage account. You have to put the money in. Then you have to make the purchase, and then you have to make the sale, and then you have to might have to wait a couple days for the trade to settle to get your cash out. So it's not the end of the world, but it's one extra step to get that extra yield. I honestly think either route probably makes sense these days. You could maybe even split the difference and have a little bit in each because if rates do start moving and treasury yields are moving different than the Fed funds rate or these savings rates, you could maybe go back and forth to one another. I I just think once you pick whatever route you're going to take, I would just stick with it and not try to go back and forth and earn an extra 10 basis points here or 20 basis points there. In the grand scheme of things, that's probably not going to matter much. The good news is, you already know how to save. This person has $60,000 saved. They're well on their way to having a healthy down payment. And if and when home prices drop from here, they could actually be in a pretty good position to buy.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, let's hope so. Let's, uh, for, for those of us that don't own homes yet, it would this be nice to see This is potentially, right, Duncan? Yeah, right, yeah. Well, so if you're saving for down payment now, what would you feel more comfortable doing? Um, honestly, I would probably like Google the highest yielding stocks and buy those and lose half of it by next, by next year. You
0: would, you would take, you would take dividend stocks for your down payment.
1: Uh, yeah. I'm I'm just telling you honestly what I would probably end up doing, but yeah, that's, you can lead a horse to water. No, here's the thing. I don't, I don't think, I don't
0: mind having some stocks in like your down payment fund, but I would right size it and maybe put 20% in there, 30% because, you just don't want those stocks to crash right when you need the money and and go from, I'm going to have $70,000 for a down payment to, wait, it's 60000 because I had one awful month in the stock market.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in all seriousness about the the question, I, w- I would probably be more likely to do the savings account just because of what you're saying, the convenience factor. Um, it is. It's, yeah, it's easier.
0: Yeah. And now you have some. You're kind of paying a
1: fee for convenience, I guess, right? Let's do another
0: one. Yeah. I, I didn't even realize we did the first three ones are all about bonds here.
1: Right. Yeah. No, no, I'm, I'm learning a lot today. All right. Okay, uh, so up next we have a question from Mitch, and this one this is the most confusing thing to me. I keep saying bond math. I I don't know. Maybe you can make it make more sense. In the past, I hesitated to allocate to bonds since you get killed on principal while collecting low rates of interest. Now that we've uh, got a su- substantial allocation to bonds, or a more substantial allocation to bonds than ever before, I'd like to get more clarity on the impact that rate changes have on principal value. For instance, if rates double, does that mean the principal has dropped in half? I think it would be helpful for people to better understand the scale of value changes with rates uh, to get more comfortable with the risks or benefits of future bond value changes.
0: Great question on the basics of bonds that most people either didn't know, didn't want to know, or maybe didn't care to learn about until this year. All right. So the first things to know about bond, bonds and prices and bonds and rates. There's an inverse relationship between bond prices and rates. John, throw up my handy, Tom Cruise. Easy. Inverse, right? We've been doing a lot of inversion lately. Tom Cruise explains it the best. Uh so there's an inverse relationship, meaning when interest rates rise, bond prices fall. When interest rates fall, bond prices rise. This makes sense. Let's look through a simple example, Duncan. So let's think about the relative attractiveness. If you own a 4% bond right now and rates go to 5%, your 4% bond has to be worth less if you want someone else to buy it because you can get 5% in the market. So you're going to get less interest. So you're going to have to uh, charge a discount if someone wants to buy that to give them a higher implicit rate, right? Now let's say rates go to 3%. Well, now your 4% bond is going to be worth more relatively because you have a higher rate. So people are going to give you a premium for that bond, right? So it makes sense when you think about it in terms of the the rates that you could get, right? Now, the real question is how much do bonds fall when rates rise? That's what everyone wants to know, right? And this is getting into a little bit of nerdy bond math territory, but I think it can really help set expectations if you're buying bonds for your portfolio. So duration is this number that measures the relationship between bond prices and yield changes. It's expressed in years. Right? So you'll see eight-year duration, and it's typically pretty close to maturity of a bond, but not exactly the same thing. It basically takes into account the maturity of the bond, but also how long it takes to get your money back. Because if you're earning a yield, you're technically going to get your money back before the end of it, right? That makes sense? Okay, so the most important thing you need to know about duration is the higher the number, the more volatility in your bonds, all else equal. So let's say you have a bond port- portfolio with a five-year duration. What this tells us is that you can expect a 5% change in price for every 1% change in yield. Yield goes up one percent. You should expect your bond to roughly go down five percent. Yield goes down one percent. You should expect your bond to go up roughly five percent. It's not exactly that, but it's it's pretty darn close. There's some other intricacies involved in here, but that that's the gist of it. Okay, so so higher duration means bigger drawdowns in a rising rate environment and bigger gains in a falling rate environment. John, let's let's do a chart on a zero coupon bond to show an example here. This is the, the extremes. Zero coupon bonds are all duration because you don't get paid income over time. You, you buy it at a heavy discount and you get paid back your principal at maturity. So there's no regular income payment. So zero coupon bonds are literally all duration. This is the 25 plus year PIMCO one. You can see it's, it's rallied lately, but it's down 34% this year. That's more than the stock market. And then we compare that to one to three year treasuries that are down 3.8%. So again, higher duration when rates rise is going to get smacked way more than lower duration, which makes sense. Because one to three-year treasuries have like 1.9-year duration, right? So they're not getting hit as bad. Now, the other side of this can be seen in the first six months of 2020. John, do the, the next chart. This is the first six months of 2020. Zero-coupon bonds were up more than 30%. One to three-year treasuries were up 3%. This is like two sides, it's two sides of the extreme coin. And it's rarely going to be this much extreme involved. But that's the trade-off here. So the question for you as an investor, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. But it's it's do you want to accept more volatility in your bonds? When rates fall, you want to get bigger gains and rates rise, you're going to get bigger losses. Or do you want to like try to predict how they will work in the economy if, if rates are going to fall because of economic growth or the Fed or recession? Then you want to like go on long into the curve to get more bang for your buck. Or if you're worried rates are going to rise, then you're going to go in shorter term and you want to be more tactical. Or do you just want more safety and predictability? Do you want to take the volatility out of the equation? My, my way of thinking about it personally has always been, I'm going to accept volatility where I'm getting paid for it, and that's in the stock market. I don't want to t- take much volatility in the bond market, but it really depends on what you're trying to get. What do you think? How's my
1: explanation here, Duncan? Uh, I mean, I, I feel like the Zach Galifianakis, you know, GIF with all the, the numbers. Biggest, the, again, the me.
0: biggest thing you need to know is that the duration tells you you can. So, if it's a 10-year duration and rates go up 1%, you're probably going to lose 10%, ish.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: That that's your relationship. Okay. So if it's a 50 basis point move, you're going to lose 5% right? It's that's kind of the the relative relationship.
1: Okay. I think I think I got it. I think I'm getting it.
0: So if we go into a recession and rates interest rates get cut in a half here, long duration bonds are going to do much better. Right? Because they have a much higher duration.
1: Got it. Let us know Mitch. Let us know if that that explains it and helps helps you understand it.
0: All right, let's do another one.
1: Okay. Up next, we have a question from actually I'm not going to say your name in case this this question makes them have an awkward conversation with their wealth manager. Um, okay, longtime listener of Animal Spirits. I'm 49 with three kids, retired and married. For all intents and purposes, I'm rich-ish. That is, comfortable but can't afford a yacht. Uh, I hired a wealth manager, and he brought me this fund of uncorrelated assets with a 10-year walk I trust my manager implicitly, but he claims that it's exclusive and not everyone has access to this private equity fund. I think I'd be better off, uh, buying Vanguard ETFs, but for what it's worth, he's a professional wealth manager and I'm just another guy on the street. I don't know if he means on the street or like the street, you know what I mean? I think,
0: I think just a guy. Okay. So, guy someone, the in the, someone in the comments here asked how I have three kids in house. that's so white. Uh, you know, those magic eraser things. I'm constantly washing the walls here. Mm. Fingerprints, it crans, everything.
1: Uh, is that like a long call for Procter and Gamble or who, who makes this?
0: Yeah, I don't know who does make that. It's got to be one of those consumer staples. But, know, rocks, those are
1: maybe? I,
0: yeah, I, I get those every three months from Amazon because I, I go through so many of them. Uh, internet down in my office today. I was down hard. No internet when I got to the office. They canceled my account for some reason. And, uh, th- you know, I said this week I'm, I'm, I'm not feeling so great about AI. You know, it took me 45 minutes to get a person on the phone. AI doesn't understand. Talk to an operator. Talk to an operator. I just say it over and over again until someone talks to me.
1: Right. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's the future of it. But I like the the Christmas vibes. So I appreciate that. All right.
0: My wife is big into the decoration. Okay. My view here is that there are a lot of ways to be successful as an investor. I have my way of doing things, but I'm not delusional enough to think that like my way is the only way to invest. Right. So, um, having said that, if you're going to see through a long-term investment plan, you have to be able to like understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. And so I think if you're hiring, we get a lot of questions about hiring an advisor. I think you can outsource your investment plan and your financial plan and your portfolio management, but you can outsource your understanding. So let's actually bring in a, a financial advisor because I think this is better for someone who's working with clients on a daily basis. Alex Palumbo. Hey, Alex. Al- Hi, how are you? Alex, uh, you've implemented a lot of plans, you've worked with a lot of clients, you've talked to a lot of prospects. Now, one of the big things for us at RDWM is is fit, and that's fit between the client and our way of doing things, and then our way of doing things in the client. So. Mm-hmm. I mean, if someone comes to you and wants you to do something for them that we simply can't or won't do, um, how does that work? Or how does? Uh, alternatively, you have a client who comes to you and they say, "I just don't agree with the way that you invest, but but I, I still want you to be my financial advisor." How does that work? And how do you how do you work through those those sort of challenges?
2: Yeah. So it's interesting when people want to work with a financial advisor, a financial planner, and then don't want you managing their portfolio, or they don't trust the things you say, seems like a very non-mutually beneficial relationship. Like, why are you gonna pay me money for advice then that you don't then take? Regarding this particular uh, listener, you know, I mean, first of all, 49 years old, three kids and retired, rich-ish. I don't yeah. know a lot of 49-year-olds that are retired with three kids that are, in fact, rich-ish. Very <laughs> impressive.
1: Yeah, Just good. because um, they don't have a yacht,
2: yes. No, to be honest, that is impressive. So we could assume that you're listening to Animal Spirits. You're somewhat financially savvy, you would say. I mean, you know, these illiquid investments are like the bane of my existence as someone who previously worked in the broker world selling a lot of these typically subpar products. Um, And listen, it's exclusive. Not everyone has uh, access to it. It's private equity fund. He's probably right. But that exclusivity doesn't necessarily mean better outcomes and you're paying a steep premium for it in the fact that you can't touch this investment for 10 years. So if you trust your wealth manager and you like to add diversification to your situation, then it's most likely fine with a very small portion of your portfolio to take that leap into the private equity fund. However, within the financial plan that you're monitoring with your financial advisor, I would categorize this investment as not funding goals. So don't rely on using any of these funds towards the uh, achievement of your financial goals, you're essentially increasing variance in an attempt to hit home runs, which is fine if you understand the risk-reward relationship.
0: Right. And and you know if it's a 10-year lockup, and sometimes these private equity funds, I know from experience, can extend and be way longer than 10 years. It could be 15, 20 years to get all your money back. And so understand, you're right, that this is untouchable money for a long time. So if you're retired at, at a young age, you're not taking in Social Security yet. You're living off your investments. Where else is that liquidity coming from? And, and do you have the ability to take 5, 10, 15% of your portfolio and put it in something liquid and still have the ability to fund your lifestyle in the meantime? You know, we have products that, not
2: products, we have strategies we offer clients that very small portion of their overall portfolio. Hey, I think this could make sense for your particular situation. Definitely not mandatory. What are your thoughts? But then we have our core bread and butter strategies that saying, hey, When you become a client, these are the one, two, three strategies that you are going to utilize inside of these accounts. So this isn't like a buffet. You can come and get anything you want because that's a very non-productive relationship, in my opinion. So there's a difference between like small percentage of your assets. Let's try to hit home runs, but we're not going to mess with the bread and butter, the core competency of how you and your family are going to grow your assets over time and achieve your goals.
0: And I do think, not trying to like... uh... You know, take out this guy's advisor here. But if you're saying I think I'd be better off with Vanguard ETFs, and this advisor keeps pushing private stuff and illiquid stuff because they're exclusive and all this other stuff, I think that's at the point where you start having a conversation with someone else. Just see what else is out there. Because if if it's if it's really not something that you can stick with, even if it's a great investment and it's not going to work for you, like it's not suitable for you, then you're never going to be able to stick with it, and you're going to want to leave eventually anyway. And by the way, breaking up with an advisor with a bunch of illiquid stuff in your portfolio, as Alex, you've, you can attest to, is not an easy thing to do. It's, it's much easier to cut bait when you have a more liquid portfolio.
2: Yeah, that is brutal. I interpreted this question as I already own a high percentage of Vanguard ETFs. Now he's coming to me with this little portion of my portfolio that maybe I should use in this private equity fund. But if your interpretation is correct, Ben, and- this guy is talking negatively on Vanguard ETFs or recommending a very high percentage in this investment, then I think that's a much bigger issue, and you should not proceed with using this advisor.
0: Right. OK, let's do another one,
2: Duncan.
1: Uh, I have I have one follow-up, one uh, new boil question maybe, but what's the point of a 10-year lock-up? Why like Why would you be OK with that? Well,
0: it, well, it's, a, well it's a private equity fund, so it, that's just an illiquid fund structure that you're going to be investing in these things. And they assume by the time you buy into some of these investments, turn them around operationally, and then have some sort of liquidity event. It's going to take ten years,
1: probably. Okay. Okay. So they just don't want, Duncan, don't want to be pestered after three years about getting money back when it hasn't had a chance to do what they're trying to do yeah. with it. Okay.
2: Duncan's like, why would I need ten years of a lockup in an investment when I can lose all my money in Oatly yeah. in six like, months? When I can, don't really understand. When I
1: can lose you know forty percent in a year, why do I want a ten-year <laughs> lockup? Uh, okay. So last but not least, we have the following. I'm in my mid-twenties and just got my CFP. I've been an advisor for a couple of years now, but I'm having trouble relating to our firm's clients since most of them are retired or approaching retirement. I'm worried they don't trust me since I'm much younger than they are and don't, and I don't have a ton of experience. Uh, do you have any advice for a young advisor? Well, we actually do.
0: Great, great question. Alex, I'm not sure you know this, but I look a lot younger than my 41 years of age, right? Mm. I, st- I have three kids and I go to the store and I still get carded sometimes. Do you um, really? On occasion, uh, that's gotta be flattering. One of the, one of the first meetings I ever had with, with Chris Venn and one of our clients that reached out when I first joined Ridholz was a guy in his mid fifties, and he kind of made the the point to both of us immediately that I, I don't know if I can handle this age difference because you guys are so much younger than me, and it, it's it can be tough because there is a huge difference between experience and expertise and all these things. But a, a lot of people you come into contact with who have the most money are going to be older. And, and so Alex, you came to us at what twenty four years old? Is that about right? Yeah, I was 23 when I first started here. 23. So how did you navigate that as a young, up-and-coming advisor and then building a book of business?
2: Yes. Well, now that I'm old and crusty and in my 30s, I can give a very seasoned uh, answer to this question. So first and foremost, I did a previous interview with the one and only Josh Brown on this exact topic, which you can see here, being a younger financial advisor. Um, but yeah, it's, it's actually a really good question. Um, I think it's pretty nuanced, to be honest. First and foremost, I would say to this um, listener's question, your clients are not your friends. They're paying you for a very serious service that you should be efficient and adequate in delivering. So when you mention I'm having trouble relating to them, to me, it makes me think you're viewing your relationship in the wrong context. Now, I'm very close with a lot of my clients some send me yearly holiday cards, not going to give out names. A lot of them send me wedding gifts when I got married. We are very close, but this closeness is not based on us watching the same TV shows or having the same friends. It's based on the mutual respect of our financial planning relationships and then adding in layers of humanity, personality, and bonding based on this core financial planning concept. So first and foremost, you have to understand their perspective. Trust me, when you're 50, 60, and 70 to this listener, and you're going to be talking to 25-year-old, you're going to be thinking they're like your kids, or even worse, your grandkids. But your job is to have such a deep level of competency and technical expertise that these prospective clients or your clients are forced to look past your age because your age is not what defines you. To Ben's point, a 55-year-old broker could be doing terrible work for their clients for 30 years. And a phenomenal advisor can be doing exceptional work for your clients for five
0: years. And in a vacuum, you'd want the 25-year-old every time. Do you think, do you think the um, remote work thing actually works in a young person's favor when you're not having to sit across the table from someone and it's a little harder to tell the, the age gap or experience that That's it, I definitely,
2: guess? so when I first started here, we didn't even do like Google Meets. It was all phone, phone call, calls right? yeah. Yeah, and screen shares. And I did feel that helped me a lot um, as a 23, 24, 25-year-old advisor because they because I still look kind of young. Uh, so they couldn't see that. I do think that that helps a lot. One other piece of advice, you have a team on your side, right? It's okay yeah. to leverage your team and say that you don't have all the answers yourself from an investment management perspective, from a portfolio allocation perspective, from a tax insurance estate perspective. You have people in your firm that should have decades or combined decades of experience, and it's okay to leverage that.
0: Yeah, I think that helps. It make a lot of people more comfortable. if They know that there's a team behind you. Here's our tax expert, or our insurance expert. It's not just me. I'm your I'm your first uh, level of communication, and I'm your I'm your relationship manager, and all these things, and I'm helping you to plan. But there's there's more people here than just me. Also, and like me, the-
1: I'm here. I I'm always happy to help. You know, with the yeah. Portfolio construction. And and to be and- honest,
2: <laughs> I've probably spoken with the most prospective clients out of anyone that's 31 years old, that's in this industry, thousands of people. And I can count on my that hands- That's a not to brag the,
1: right there, Duncan. Yeah, that's definitely a not to brag. Not to
2: brag, <laughs> I've talked to many, many people. Uh, I can count on the amount of hands, the amount of hands that I have, the fingers on my hands, the amount of people that have actually said, hey, you are too young, let me chat with someone more experienced. And you know what, Ben Carlson and Duncan Hill, we've, we do that, of course, makes sense, hey, yeah chat with Gary, chat with Bill, not one of them have become client because if someone's coming into that meeting with this preconceived notion about it, they're probably not the best fit. And the second thing that I'll add is there are certain clients or prospective clients who think the opposite. Hey, I want to work with someone who's younger more eager, they're in the new school of advisory work. Not going to shove me in some investment unit trusts. I like the o- the ETFs, the new school way. So don't always project some of those insecurities, even though some well, of them are real.
0: And that and that comes back to our first question about fit. In right. it's going to figure out if, if you want to work with that person or not. It the it's a two way street. So also, I just wanted to say, Alex, uh, I, I've never seen Duncan in a worse drawdown than when we went to a nice restaurant in Houston and the maitre d told him to take off his hat there's there's no wow. hats involved and it was uh, yeah
1: i, I probably what? would have left he if was it, an immediate, bear market. Guys. immediate yeah. bear market immediate bear market
2: one time we were in the office and duncan didn't have his hat on and cameron looked at him and he goes is duncan wearing a wig <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah no one knows what my hair looks like you know
0: Yeah. all right thanks alex for joining us again offering your expertise as a more seasoned advisor now that you have a beard I know. I always had the beard. Thank you so much for having me. May I make a
2: quick plug, a product placement? Compound water tastes like Barry for the intellect, for the traitor, for the daredevil inside you. All right, it's, don't do that again. Hold
1: that bottle up a little closer so people can say it's a real thing. We actually made a uh, yeah. It's it's this actually is compound water, Ben. Did oh, you know this? A listener. Yeah, yes. it's a, a listener is a, like a bottle uh, a bottle of water person, and so yeah, we we made we made some bottles. May or may not
2: cause you to wear deep v next batnik style.
0: All right. If you're listening in podcast form, leave us a review. Remember, leave us a comment in the YouTube comments here. If you have a question, email us, askthecompoundshow at gmail.com, and we will see you next time.
1: See you, everyone. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is brought to you by Ritholtz Wealth Management. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities mentioned on this podcast.